Hi, welcome to the Bioinformatics Chat. My guest today is Simeon Karstens, and uh, we will be talking about Bayesian analysis of high-C data. Simeon, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Simeon, my understanding is that uh, you're a physicist. So uh, how did you transition into bioinformatics and, and biology and biophysics? Right. So um, up until my master's in physics, I pretty much focused on theory and uh, in the end did my master's thesis in a subject in computational astrophysics. Astrophysics? Yeah. Wow. Exactly. <laughs> This is one of the you know most unusual profiles of people who have been on on this podcast. Right, right, right. Yeah, it was was quite a change um, getting into biology then. Uh, but why I did this eventually was that I had the feeling while astrophysics is interesting, it's a very remote thing, and kind of wanted to apply the computation methods I've been using uh, for my astrophysics uh, subject in a more life science oriented. Uh, well, research field. And um, well, then I was on the, uh, I looked for uh, positions and found a sort of algorithmically oriented group, which I found uh, a good, good match because it allowed me to focus on the methods and not necessarily dig too deep into the biology. Uh, although, of course, I still had this option. So, so that was for your PhD? Yeah, exactly. So I started my PhD right after my master's in physics. Yeah, and for my PhD, I changed to structural bioinformatics, if you want. Yeah, right. And and you just completed your postdoc, right? Yeah, that was my second postdoc. Were you working exclusively on high C, or what other areas of um, biology did you touch? Uh, so in terms of biology, the data I worked with was exclusively high C. Another part of my PhD was about Markov chain Monte Carlo sampling methods, so very algorithmically oriented. They are useful in general for Bayesian uh, data analysis, which we might get into later. But in terms of applications of those methods to actual biological data, um, I exclusively worked on high C data. And we should also mention that now, now that you finished your uh, second postdoc, you're looking for a position and not in academia but in the industry so um you know if any of the people listening to this podcast if you have any any openings and you'll uh, get a sample of simeon's <laughs> uh, competency um as as we go along here but um definitely get in touch with him that would be amazing great let's start with learning about high c i imagine a lot of people listening to this either have never heard of high C or maybe heard, but uh, don't really have too much experience with it. So, uh, what is high C? So, um, high C is the, well, let's say, most recent incarnation of a class of methods which allow to uh, query the three dimensional structure of chromatin. Um, so the this class of method is called uh, chromosome conformation capture, or for short, uh, 3C, and uh, was, I guess, invented in, when was that? 2002, perhaps? Uh, and in the beginning, you could query uh, two uh, single loci. Basically, you would get a contact frequency um, between two single loci. So let's clarify this. Maybe let's start with uh, what is chromatin for, for those who maybe don't remember. Yeah, so chromatin would be um, the functional form of DNA, most in the interface uh, nucleus. So basically, it's DNA with associated uh, proteins, mostly histones. Um, depending on which website or which definition of chromatin you look up, um, also RNA is counted towards chromatin. But it's basically the stuff... Uh, functional or the, the yeah it's the functional form of of dna in the interface nucleus right so is is the way the the dna uh appears in the cell or is is packaged in the in the cell in the nucleus right exactly so it's not a naked dna but uh, it's sort of pre-organized on those histone proteins and this complex is called chromatin then why exactly are we interested in its 3d structure this is also a recent 
thing. I mean, um, from imaging experiments, uh, which were already there before, um, the high C experiments, obviously, you had information about, say, chromosome territories, um, and you were able to label uh, single genes and um, see basically where they are located in the nucleus. Um, but then it turns out that the similar basically to a protein, the sort of fold of DNA in the interface nucleus is of functional relevance. So um, the 3D organization of chromatin is a epigenetic regulation or gene regulation mechanism. And this makes it obvious that um, the well, 3D organization of the genome is uh, crucial for many biological processes. Right. And so this method called 3C was uh, invented and uh, 3C uh, sort of stands for is like a tongue in cheek way of saying CCC, right? Which stands yeah. for uh, mm -hmm. chromosome conformation capture. And uh, yeah, what, what was that method like and what were its uh, limitations? So uh, the basic concept is uh, that you cross-link uh, cells, you fix them using formaldehyde usually, uh, usually. then you would um, add a restriction enzyme to digest DNA at the well, predefined um, restriction sites, and then um, you would ligate those dangling ends you basically have uh, of these restriction fragment ends. And um, using those ligations... Well, you get sort of a little, if you want, chimeric sequence. I don't know whether that's the, the correct expression, but imagine two loci on a chromosome, which are far in sequence, but close in space. After fixating the cells and uh, ligating, you would have a short chimeric sequence of those two loci. Um, and this ligation junction can then be detected. That way you get information about uh, which loci have been close in space at the time of uh, cross-linking. Right, so so that was called 3C, right? Yeah, that's that's the basic process in all these uh, 3C-based methods. And uh, the very first 3C-based method, well, called 3C, uh, was able to query only uh, two select loci, basically. That was the crucial limitation um, of the very first incarnation of this, this method. And then there were other methods like uh, 4C. What was there also 5C as well? Yeah, exactly. So basically, those methods 4C, 5C, subsequently high C, um, increasingly um, yielded better coverage. So 4C um, is a uh, one versus uh, many method. So you would be able to query one loci, uh, sorry, one locus against uh, a larger set of loci. Um, while in 3C you could query one locus against one locus. Uh, 5C then would be a many versus many method. Basically, you query many loci against uh, many other loci, thus allowing you to investigate um, the 3D organization of a whole genomic region, basically. Um, and high C then is the well, ultimate coverage, uh, which is genome-wide, all versus all. I guess nowadays we just use high C. Is there any any point in doing those older methods or previous methods? Oh yeah, absolutely. It depends on the application um, you have. So one drawback of high C is that uh, it involves a lot of uh, next generation sequencing with the uh, associated costs. Um, uh, and if you if you're only interested in interested in say a smaller genomic region, you might as well just take five C, um, which is also sequencing based. Or if again, if you're interested only in how one locus interacts with several other loci, you might as well pick four C, uh, and that way save money and might have an easier protocol to follow actually. Interesting. Okay, so once we we've done one of these experiments and uh, the data we get for, for those higher C things where we don't need to like explicitly design primers we get uh, sequencing data mm -hmm. uh, as with uh, you know DNA sequencing or, or RNA sequencing and uh, unlike 
other sequencing experiments, we're interested in uh, very specific sort of reads, the reads that indicate a uh, junction between mm -hmm. two pieces, two genomic pieces yeah. that come from very different uh, positions on the chromosome. So right. we, we're looking for those events, and uh, that sort of tells us about uh, which parts of the chromosome were close to each other in the three dimensions. Absolutely. Not only of one chromosome, but of the whole genome. You might have uh, basically inter-chromosomal inter contacts as well. Yeah. How do you analyze this data. So, so let's say you filtered your read set and you found those interesting reads. How do you then summarize them to, to make sense of them? Right. Uh, so the first step, once you do have your sequencing data, um, would be to align those reads to the reference genome of the organism you're considering, which then actually allows you to associate uh, the loci um, you detected with, uh, well, a specific loci on specific chromosomes. This Only this gives you the information uh, which loci has been in contact with which other loci, how many times. Yeah. And this the data you eventually get would be a um, contact matrix. Uh, so imagine a single cell case. You would have a matrix on the axis. You would have the sort of chromosomal length in base pairs. And uh, you would get a dot in this matrix um, if you measured uh, one of those ligation junctions um, at the loci corresponding to this dot, basically, which are indicated by the X and Y values. And this matrix then would have a, a strong diagonal. It's easy to imagine because strong di a dot on the diagonal means that... Um, uh, two loci, which uh, are close in sequence, have also been close in space. And that does make totally sense. Right, so it would be something like a small loop in the DNA or some kind of twist. Right, I mean, the uh, loops are then the interesting contacts, right, which are off the diagonal, because they are farther away in sequence, but still close in space. Right. Uh, so when you were talking about the strong diagonal, did you mean uh, things that are not really even uh, ligation events? Uh, I guess you would try to filter those out before you get ligation events uh, close to the diagonal, but they don't really contain that much information, right? Because as DNA is a polymer, uh, you don't, I mean, it's obvious that uh, that those are which are close in sequence are also close in space. So the counts close to the diagonal would be much less informative than um, the off-diagonal. Exactly. Counts. So once you... Because you can't tell from the sequencing data whether there is a you know chimeric read, whether there's a ligation event there or not, or if it's just contiguous. Actually, you can, um, because you selectively pull down uh, those... Uh, fragments which do have a ligation junction. Uh, so those uh, fragments are marked with biotin and you can use this to selectively pull down actually um, those those little chimeric sequences. Oh, that's great. Right. So uh, so if you are considering just the, the ligation events, uh, why are you still seeing the strong main diagonal in this matrix? Is it is it because there are like small twists in the DNA or why is that? Yeah, absolutely. You could have very, that's probably what you meant before. You can have very tiny loops, right? Of, uh, between those which are close in sequence. Yeah. There's an actually, uh, very interesting, uh, interesting work on that, um, which uses this information of, uh, ligations, which are very close in sequence to determine, uh, bounds for the, uh, bending stiffness of, uh, of chromatin. This is very interesting work because obviously um, if, if those loci are too close uh, and the DNA has a certain stiffness, you can't bend it uh, so that you can ligate those, uh, those free ends. So you get this contact matrix and uh, just by looking at it, so you could visualize it as a sort of a heat map where it's, uh, uh, you know, higher temperature, the, the more uh, 
contact points you you got there, and presumably you use some binning, right? So you consider yeah, yeah, yeah. like intervals on the on the chromosome. Uh, so you use some binning, and you visualize uh, it as a heat map. So what can you tell from a typical contact map or, or contact matrix just by uh, looking uh, at it? Right. So uh, one has to be clear that before binning, uh, in the single cell case, um, speaking about a heat map doesn't really make sense. Because between two specific loci, uh, in the single cell case, you can have a maximum of uh, two contacts um, for well, loci and chromosomes of which you have two copies in the cell. So uh, in the ideal case where there's no like uh, half-replicated chromosome or something, your maximum count in this matrix would be two. So uh, I wouldn't speak of a heat map yet uh, in the single case, uh, single cell case. On the other hand, this experiment usually is performed on whole cell populations. And then you're right, a heat map would give you a contact frequency or something most likely proportional to a contact probability. So that's an important uh, distinction to make, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think we'll, we'll talk about the single cell case a bit later. Um, mm -hmm. I, I was assuming that the bulk high C is sort of the normal case as it, yeah, as it was yeah, in yeah. like RNA sequencing that single cell is a is a more late development right so usually you would see in in that heat map you would see some kind of structure right uh, yeah. so mm -hmm. uh, there are these things uh, that are called uh, tads can you, can you talk maybe a bit about those yeah absolutely so if you look at the uh, pre-processed and uh, filtered heat maps you see um, a sort of plate pattern or blocks in this matrix. And uh, those correspond to um, different levels of uh, sort of domain organization in the DNA, if you want. So the biggest blocks um, have been found in the very first TIC publication and would be called AB compartments, which are uh, alternatingly uh, active and passive in terms of... Um, transcription activity. And within those AB compartments, um, you would have uh, sub-blocks, um, like little beads on a string, uh, which would then be the uh, topologically associating domains or TADs, which you just mentioned. Yeah, this is currently very much under investigation, um, whether those TADs are uh, present in uh, each single cell, whether they're an averaging effect, but they do seem to have uh, the property of being a uh, fundamental uh, structural organization element. Um, so to the best of my knowledge, TADs are uh, conserved between uh, tissue types, for example, but not necessary between between organisms. Interesting. So so these TADs, these domains, they're sort of analogous to protein domains, which are like consistent substructures w w within a bigger protein. So if you consider chromatin as something like a protein, then uh, are these domains, I guess, are in some way analogous? Uh, in a sense, yeah. yeah. You can actually uh, model um, chromatin as a uh, beats on a string model. That is what we do in our research, and that's also what other groups do. Um, other groups actually use the information about TATS to build those uh, beats for their, for their modeling procedures. Mm -hmm. So, so tads play the role of the beats on a string in this model. Uh, in that specific model of that group, yes. Yeah. Okay, and you also mentioned the single cell high C, which sort of follows the general trend of making everything single cell. Mm. Um, what kind of uh, experimental developments enabled you know performing high C in in single cells? Is it is it uh, more or less analogous to single cell RNA sequencing, or or is it very different? So to be honest, I'm not too familiar with single cell RNA sequencing. Um, what I can tell you is that uh, single the first single cell HiC uh, paper came out in 2013, which is uh, I think three or four years after the original HiC uh, publication, and. Um, it actually involved picking a uh, single nuclei under the microscope and then performing an adapted high C protocol on, on the single nuclei. 
Single cell high C has been developed further by increasing throughput. Uh, so in the meanwhile, you can actually uh, you can actually have uh, several thousand of uh, single cell high C maps from one experiment. Speaking of the single cell high C, as you said, there, there's not enough data to make heat maps really because it's either on or off. So yeah. it's a very particular uh, kind of data. Right. So how, how do people analyze high C data and what, what inferences can you make uh, out of it? So, uh, what many people often, what people often do once they get a uh, high C matrix, uh, be it single cell or uh, population uh, high C is, uh, detecting those tats, for example. So there are a lot of um, methods to, to call those tats. Um, and uh, we just talked about these block structures, um, which you immediately notice just by looking at um, at one of those matrices. Uh, but very interesting are also uh, single uh, points of higher contact frequency, which are off the diagonal, which would correspond to basically um, attachment points of loops. We would have increased contact frequency. So this is an important thing uh, people look out for because they might correspond to, uh, say, a promoter-enhancer contact. So is is this in the context of single-cell HI-C? Or are we talking about bulk now? Because I, I'm, I'm thinking if it's single-cell HI-C, right, then if there is a single point of contact, wouldn't it correspond to roughly like a single dot in the matrix? Yeah, absolutely. So that last comment about the... Uh, points of increased frequency of the diagonal that definitely applies only to population high C as the single cell high C data is uh, way too sparse for that. Right. Right. Another uh, interesting thing you can deduce from the contact matrices alone um, are uh, how strongly the contact probability between two loci decreases with the sequential distance, which... Um, tells you something about the polymer physics of um, of chromatin. This contact probability as a function of uh, linear distance um, is a measure um, predicted by uh, different uh, statistical physics polymer models for DNA. And depending on the assumptions which go into these models, this might also tell you again about how, for example, the dynamics or how um, chromatin was getting into this organized form it now is in the cell. And so in one of your uh, previous papers, you introduced a, uh, a specific modeling framework for single cell uh, high C data. And uh, can, can you talk about that? Yeah. So um, the modeling framework we introduced uh, is based on uh, an approach my PhD supervisor developed um, called inferential structure determination. And uh, before uh, going into detail about the high C modeling, I should probably um, quickly explain what the original approach is about. Inferential structure determination um, is a, a Bayesian view on structure determination from any kind of biological data. So what you would traditionally do is you would take a set of, or you would calculate many uh, trial structures, back calculate uh, experimental data from them, and um, make this back calculated data fit to the experimental one uh, to basically uh, find structures which reproduce your data well. And you augment this with um, physical a priori information about, say, a force field between amino acids or uh, connectivity, which enforces the uh, restraint that we, we deal with polymer chains. And you would find a uh, optimal structure which fits the data best and also the prior information. Right. So, so we, sh we should clarify that your goal here is very ambitious. It's to actually reconstruct the, the full 3D structure. Because a lot of times, I think, uh, when biologists do... Uh, high C experiments, they're mostly interested in like what lies close to what just yeah, to, yeah. to, to predict where maybe enhancers are located or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, as a biophysicist, you're, you're not content with that. You, you want like the, the real thing. Right. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that's indeed what we're doing. We are trying to find a uh, three-dimensional, well, at least approximation to the actual structure, which will, of course, be uh, coarse-grained because we can't model each uh, base pair separately. Now, the approach I just mentioned, the classical one, basically fitting uh, back-calculated data to experimental data using some uh, optimization method to find the best-fitting structure is, in our view, kind of problematic. So um, one thing is you usually end up with uh, one optimal structure and you have no measure of uh, certainty uh, about the structure, right? If you have a minimization problem and your algorithm is, you know, does what it's supposed to do, you will always end up uh, with a um, or with very similar structures which correspond to the global minimum of your of your uh, scoring function, but you don't have any information about how broad, basically, this sort of basin is in which this optimal structure is located. Um, and furthermore, uh, these approaches lack any uh, clear statistical foundation. So it's very hard to speak about, say, uh, an error bar for your structure, about a structural standard deviation. And another thing is that many of these approaches require um, the a priori setting of modeling parameters. Um, which are not of primary interest. And you would set those to um, sort of arbitrary values, uh, but it's really not a very objective process. And um, ISD tries to improve on all those aspects. What was the context in which uh, the ISD was originally introduced? Yeah, so ISD was originally introduced for uh, protein structure uh, determination from NMR data. And, and so we already mentioned the rough analogy between protein structure modeling and chromatin structure modeling. So it mm. sounds natural to apply the methods from proteins to, to chromatin. And that's what, what you did, right? So uh, yeah. what does your model look like? So we actually proposed several models. Um, so... Much of the NMR data, um, which was used to model protein structures back then when ISD was invented, uh, was basically distance data. You would have distance restraints between uh, different, uh, well, amino acids in this in this case, and we can sort of transfer this model to um, to HiC. So it's uh, sort of common practice to derive distance restraints from HiC data. So basically, from the experimental data, you propose a model which tells you that given this data, um, the distance between two uh, loci, in the case of IC, is supposed to be that and that or within a certain range. And you would use this information, which comes from your modeling assumptions, as a uh, restraint, meaning that your structure, which you're optimizing, or the real structure which you're looking for is supposed to um, fulfill this restraint. So in the actual structure, in your model, two uh, loci should uh, fulfill this restraint, be within that range or be approximately that certain distance apart. What exactly are, are the assumptions that lead to uh, restraining the distance? Could, could you give a specific example? Yeah, so... Um, these assumptions most often come from polymer physics. So it's, a, it's of course, it's a very approximative thing. Um, so in population high C data, you would, of course, ex expect that if you have many counts between two loci, then uh, on average, those two loci would be closer in space um, as compared to two loci which have few counts uh, in, the, in the high C matrix. And uh, so you would have a uh, sort of inverse uh, relation between the distance or the proposed distance and the uh, high C count. Okay, so so the this restraint function comes from the data, right? It's not it's not a priori based on your model, but it incorporates the data as well. Exactly, it does incorporate the data, but the specific form of the restraint function um, is. A somewhat arbitrary choice. You can motivate it partially from polymer physics, 
But then again, um, you're never sure how appropriate your polymer physics, which actually, or your polymer physics model, which leads to, to this special, um, or to that specific form of this relation. You're never sure how appropriate this actually is, given the little information we have about uh, polymer physics of chromatin. Right. So the, the distance restraint tells you how well your 3D model corresponds to the data. Is, is that roughly correct? That's absolutely correct. Uh, under the assumptions of the model model you're choosing, yeah. I guess this is compatible with both the Bayesian approach and the simple sort of optimization maximum likelihood approach. So w where does the, the Bayesian magic come in? Uh, you're absolutely right. This um, is shared between both approaches. Uh, the Bayesian magic comes in by asking the question in a different way. Um, the question asked in Bayesian approaches or specifically in inferential structure determination is, what do we know about a structure given data and uh, a priori information? And uh, it turns out that this question is being answered uh, by the posterior probability distribution over structures. So basically, for a given uh, structure, you would get some value between 0 and 1. 0 meaning you're absolutely sure this structure is not the correct structure um, under the assumptions of your model. And the value of 1 for this posterior probability being you're absolutely sure that this structure is the correct structure. But then I assume your structures populate some kind of continuous space. It's more like a probability density there. Yeah, it is. Absolutely, yeah. So it could get out of the zero one interval. Right, yeah. Yeah, sure. And uh, how exactly do you model that space so in order to perform either optimization or, um, or Bayesian inference? You have to specify the space of all possible confirmation so you already mentioned the uh, beats on on the string model mm -hmm. and uh, walk us through the specifics of how how that model is is set up like for example how many beats do you have what what do they correspond to right right so um you mentioned before that you would usually uh before uh doing structure modeling you would bin your high c matrix so um those bins would then correspond to uh, beads on a string. So basically, we approximate the chromatin polymer by uh, sort of a beads on a string model, where we have spherical units um, linked to each other. Um, and each uh, spherical unit, called a bead in this case, uh, corresponds to a certain amount of DNA. And we approximate, well, this stretch of DNA contained within those units as a spherical thing, basically. Now there's, in our model, uh, two components to this um, to this polymer model. Uh, one being a volume exclusion term, uh, which makes sure that those, that two beads don't overlap too much. Otherwise, you would tend to get very compact structures. Uh, and the other um, component is a um, sort of bond length restraint, right? So if you have two neighboring beads in this beads on a string model in this chain, you don't want them to be further apart than a certain distance to avoid that you get a very like uh, stretched out polymer. So that's the role of the string, right? The string doesn't exactly. let the beads uh, get too far apart from, from exactly. each other. And, and the first condition means just that your beads are rigid or, or at least... Almost rigid? Almost rigid, yeah. Uh, that is uh, a parameter, actually, which is uh, sort of uh, free and we have to set a priori. So, honestly speaking, also our Bayesian approaches are not free of parameters you have to set in advance. And this is one of those parameters. Yeah. That's, that's the dirty secret of Bayesian modeling. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so to say, yeah. I mean, but the, the, the thing about Bayesian modeling is that you're always explicit about your assumptions. So in a sense, it's still more honest than uh, than traditional approaches, I think. Right, and uh, after you specify this this uh, model, the, your your beads and your string, 
you have this issue that the same 3D model、uh, could be rotated arbitrarily.、Uh, so if you just specify a structure by the coordinates, by the 3D coordinates of each of the beads, then to each structure there is an infinite number of ways to to specify it. Uh, accounting for all the rotations, and this、uh, poses a problem for Bayesian inference. So it is、uh, very well known in the case of mixture models, where you have multiple modes, but at least there we have a finite number of modes.、Uh, but here there is an infinite number of modes. So how do you deal with that? How do you sort of normalize this to a you know so so that You have just a single way to specify a single structure, right?、Uh, so one thing you can do is choose different coordinates.、Um, so in the original uh, ISD uh, formulation, the original ISD work on NMR structure determination,、uh, protein would be actually、um, parameterized by internal coordinates. So basically by bond lengths and torsion angles. So this is uh, one uh, way of Getting rid of these additional degree of freedoms. So you fix one of the amino acid acids as、uh, sort of the origin. Is is that the idea? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right, but how then?、Uh, still, you have to specify the orientation. So do you have to fix like two amino acids to specify the the rota- to to account for the rotational symmetries?、Uh, yes. Yeah. True, but in our case, we actually do use Cartesian coordinates. But it turns out that if you rotate、uh, your structure,、uh, of course, it's the same thing, but it also has the same、uh, posterior probability. So,、um, to be honest, I don't really see the problem there. I mean,、um, the posterior distribution is then sort of invariant under under these rotations or translations, right? For sure, it's, I think it's just a matter of efficiency because yeah,、uh, okay, even yeah. even if you are trying to explore the、uh, the space of sort of the highest probability density, you already have an infinite space to to jump around, and that's even before you get to some of those less、uh, probable, you know, volumes of your of your space. Right. So I, I I think it just becomes、uh, much less efficient to to sample the space with a lot of symmetries in it and, and many modes. That is that is true.、Uh, but in reality, actually, it turns out that、uh, so we use Markov chain Monte Carlo methods to sample from the posterior distribution, and in the Markov chain,、uh, the subsequent states are to some extent correlated. Right. So.、Um, State i would have a very similar orientation to、uh, state i plus one usually,、mm-hmm. but nevertheless,、uh, it's still correct that once we、uh, get our final ensemble of structures to、uh, compare them, we would have to align align those structures. That's absolutely right. Right, and、uh, maybe let's say a couple of words about Markov chain Monte Carlo. And、uh, <laughs> it's funny because this is, I think. Uh, this is going to be the third podcast in a row where we mention <laughs> the name of、uh, Andrei Markov,、uh, because we, we talked about、uh, Markov models and then hidden、mm. Markov models, yeah, yeah. and now we have Markov chains, which are roughly the same thing, <laughs> but in a completely different context.、Right. So,、um, yeah. So the, the the main idea of、uh, Markov chain Monte Carlo is that、uh, yeah, you you want to have this. Bayesian inference: You want to draw samples from your posterior、uh, distribution, and the idea there is that you set up a Markov chain, so a Markov model where you jump around your state space. So in this case, you jump from one confirmation to another according、mm-hmm. to some rules, according to some transition probabilities, and、uh, the idea is that if you Jump long enough, and、uh, the the states that you've visited will roughly sort of their distribution will roughly correspond to your posterior distribution. Yeah, absolutely. And、uh, there are different approaches to Markov chain Monte Carlo. So, 
which uh, specific methods are you using in, in your method? Yeah. So uh, two things. Uh, one thing I might just interject for, for, for completeness here is that uh, we're not only sampling the structures, but also uh, nuisance parameters, which are model parameters, which are of secondary interest only. So a state in our Markov chain would not only be a structure, but also uh, a set of nuisance parameters. But that's just um, just a note. What, for example, are those nuisance parameters? Right. Uh, so um, it's actually a very important important topic. In the likelihood you introduce, which basically describes sort of the goodness of fit between um, your data and the back-calculated data, you would allow some deviation between or some difference between those two. Because, of course, uh, experimental data is noisy and your model might not be perfect. So you allow uh, some kind of error. Uh, you could, for example, use a, uh, a Gaussian error, which then introduces the standard deviation of the Gaussian distribution as a modeling parameter, which is not of primary interest because we're interested in the structures and nothing else, actually. Uh, but still, uh, we have this um, noise parameter, which we um, try to infer from the data and which in previous approaches was set to uh, heuristic values all determined by cross-validation. Yeah, that makes sense. So um, we have to realize that the parameter space is very large uh, we're sampling. So if we have, uh, say, so a typical number of beats for one chromosome in our first single-cell-based work would be, say, 300 or 330 beats. And each beat has uh, three Cartesian coordinates. So we would have a sort of 1,000-dimensional parameter space. And because of uh, the data and the um, force field, the beats on the string model, all those um, coordinates are very uh, highly correlated. So you can imagine that the Poisson distribution is very complex, definitely of non-standard form, uh, and uh, multimodal as well, and high-dimensional, of course. So um, for these reasons, we need pretty... Um, efficient uh, and yeah, advanced Markov chain Monte Carlo methods. And we actually use a combination of those. The most important method uh, we use, uh, I would say, is uh, hybrid or Hamiltonian Monte Carlo, which um, actually exploits uh, the geometry of um, the parameter space or, well, that's maybe a little inaccurate. The sort of gradient information uh, of the posterior distribution to propose uh, better uh, states, which are then accepted or rejected using a metropolis criterion. Yeah, so that would be a hybrid Monte Carlo, again, using um, the gradient information of uh, the posterior distribution. So hybrid here refers to the hybrid of Hamiltonian and Markov chain, right? Because Hamiltonian, I think, is considered like separate from Markov chain Monte Carlo. Uh, I think hybrid more refers, in that case, refers rather to uh, the combination of uh, Monte Carlo or Metropolis Monte Carlo and uh, molecular dynamics, because to get these uh, proposal states for your Markov chain, you actually simulate a very short uh, microcanonical molecular dynamics trajectory that you're, you can imagine the way that your uh, parameters represent a point particle which moves under the influence of a force. And that force is given by the uh, gradient of the log probability of the posterior distribution. And you basically integrate uh, the equations of motions for this particle um, for a certain number of steps. And the endpoint of this short uh, molecular dynamics trajectory would then be your proposal state for, uh, the, for the next Markov chain state. Right, so so, um, so that's the Hamiltonian, right, Monte Carlo, mm -hmm. and uh, and then but, but you also mix that with some more sort of Markov chain methods like Gibbs sampling, I think. Absolutely, exactly, yeah. So um, depending on how you choose your statistical models for the prior distributions and the likelihood, um, turns out that. The uh, conditional distributions for uh, the nuisance parameter or parameters uh, are often of standard form. So you would often have a, say, gamma distribution, for example. 
And we then exploit GIP sampling to um, split up the difficult task of sampling from the joint distribution of structures and nuisance parameters uh, into, well, iteratively sampling from uh, the respective conditional distributions. So we can make use of uh, already implemented uh, random number generators for those standard standard distributions. Uh, and then use Hamiltonian Monte Carlo only for these structural parameters. Mm -hmm. And how do you validate this model? Like both your inference algorithm and and your generative model in the first place, how do you make sure it actually makes some physical sense? Like can you take a posterior distribution, the samples from your posterior distribution, and uh, somehow, you know, sanity check it? If you if you don't mind, I'd like to mention one more important Markov chain Monte Carlo algorithm we actually use. Um, sure. So maybe I can come back to that question, which is an important one, obviously. So so the point is that even using Hamiltonian Monte Carlo and the Gibbs sampler, uh, the Gibbs sampling scheme can get stuck in um, local minima of the high-dimensional posterior probability distribution. That is why we use a technique um, called replica exchange, which is pretty popular, I think, in computational physics and in the molecular dynamics community. Uh, it basically works uh, by not only simulating the posterior distribution, but in a sort of physics sense, also um, distributions or versions of it at a higher temperature, which effectively flattens the posterior distributions. And we would uh, basically uh, simulate several, up to several hundreds of uh, intermediate distributions. So basically we have a chain between um, a chain of uh, interpolating distributions, uh, one end being the posterior distribution, and the other end being a very, very flattened version of it, which is easy to sample for the Gibbs sampler. And occasionally uh, this replica exchange algorithm would um, exchange states between neighboring uh, simulations in this chain and by this diffusive process, you can help the simulation in the posterior distribution to escape from uh, local minima. That's interesting. That's a very important technique we use. Yeah. So if I understand correctly, raising the temperature basically makes everything more chaotic and uh, makes it easier to, ex to escape the, the stable state of... Exactly, exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and this is why you say it, it becomes flatter. So yeah. even the weirder confirmations become more probable so you can jump into them with higher probability. Yes, exactly. This this also reminds me, I, I don't know if you're familiar with this, um, I think the algorithm is called simulated annealing from mm -hmm. discrete optimization. Is yeah. that roughly the same idea? Yeah, that's a very similar idea, uh, with the key difference that simulated annealing is a uh, global optimization algorithm, right? Yeah. So the goal of simulated annealing is not to produce samples from a probability distribution, but to find uh, an extremum of some of some scoring function. Yeah. But mm -hmm. the idea is very similar. You have uh, your scoring function at different temperatures, and you occasionally, well, you exploit this to. Um, you increasingly lower the temperature until you arrive at your at your target scoring function, and thus increasing sampling. Right, and so we were uh, also talking about model validation, right? How how do you mm. model, uh, how do you validate your posterior? Right. So one thing we uh, check is whether well we can check the components of the posterior distribution separately. So we might, for example, check whether the assumptions of the force field of the structural prior model uh, are fulfilled? Mm -hmm. Do we have mm -hmm. many, say, overlaps or collisions between beats? And we, of course, also check um, how well we reproduce uh, the experimental data. So a standard plot we do is a scatter plot between the experimental data and the back-calculated one for uh, a representative uh, sample from the posterior distribution. Those would be pretty uh, naive uh, checks, I guess. And then... Uh, Obviously, and this is also very important in papers to convince people that our structures make sense, is we try to use independent uh, experimental data to check whether our structures agree with them. 
So for example, uh, we might use uh, fish distances between certain loci and check whether in our model those distances uh, are similar. Right, where fish refers to fluorescent imaging, right? Exactly, yeah. But 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 that still checks roughly that checks your your most probable point in in the space. So you're essentially checking that those confirmations that are most probable they they agree with the experiment experimental data. But uh, I could easily pass. I imagine I could easily pass that check if my algorithm just found the optimal point and replicated it a thousand times and would say this this is my posterior i'd presumably pass the check as well but right. how do you how do you check that your posterior as a whole is sort of well calibrated can can you check that uh yeah it turns out that and that is um one part of our most recent paper actually um that uh you have uh high throughput fish data uh, so you don't get a single distance, but you get a whole distance distribution um, for the distance between two specific loci. And uh, with the structures we obtain, we can basically well, plot a histogram of this distribution and see whether uh, not only the mean of those histograms, basically the experimental one, and our, uh, the histograms obtained from our models, whether not only the mean matches, but also the, say, spread of the distribution. And it turns out that that works quite nicely. Oh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> and uh, so, whereas your first paper, or I, I don't, maybe not the first, but your uh, your previous paper on on the subject was about applying the ISD, the inferential structure determination, to single cell high C data. Your uh, later paper, uh, which is now preprint, um. Is, is concerned with the aggregated population high C data. What, what is the difference? What are the unique challenges that are posed by the aggregated data? Right. So um, it's actually a very uh, interesting problem. So uh, again, so for single cell data, your contact matrices are very sparse, right? So basically those matrices are almost empty. Um, but the contacts you have uh, correspond to, uh, well, contacts measured from a maximum of uh, two molecules, right? Uh, so for single cell data, you have very sparse matrices, but the contact contacts you get are very easy to interpret and subsequently also to model. Uh, while uh, population-based data, the matrix is densely filled, but each data point is uh, basically an average between uh, an average of millions of cells of millions of uh, different genome structures, and uh, that poses a challenge uh, to reconstruct structures which reproduce these averages. Um, also, in light of uh, the question of cell-to-cell -cell reliability, right? I mean, can we safely assume that uh, genome structures are comparable between different cells? That is uh, a question uh, which is very much debated and of course with the advent of single cell uh single cell techniques um also being increasingly answered and turns also out that uh one important result of the very first single cell high c publication is that indeed um the uh, uh, measured contacts are very different from one cell to the other so um in my most recent work we basically propose a multi-state model. So one sample in the Markov chain would not consist of one structure plus nuisance parameters, but of a whole set of structures, say 20, 40, up to 100 structures, which on average reproduce the high C contact matrix, the population-based high C contact matrix. So it's basically demixing the average data uh, to obtain a set of structures which reproduces it. Right, so whereas... At, at first, your model space or your uh, state space in, in which you, you were doing Bayesian inference, right? The, the space of your confirmations, it was basically just a space of a single confirmation and it still was like thousand dimensional. But yes, now yeah. this is multiplied many times over and you have this product space where 
uh, you have many copies of that space and you have to to do inference in this huge huge space right uh, yeah. that must be very challenging technically how did you how did you manage to do that yeah that's a sort of um so basically putting the finger right in um it's a it's a big big challenge and because it's such a difficult sampling problem um we had to limit our attention to a small genomic region which comprises only two topologically associating domains we actually used the same the same techniques uh but with an increased computational effort so just to to give you some numbers um we would use uh, in this replica exchange algorithm I would use up to three to four hundred replicas, and to get say fifty thousand samples uh, in the Markov chain, that takes forty-eight hours on, on well, up to four hundred processes. So it's uh, very very slow, unfortunately, and that is uh, honestly speaking also a sort of weak point of our approach so far. That at the moment, with the current implementation, it's not scalable to say whole genome calculations at reasonable resolution, and and we uh, only regard a, a small genomic region of two neighboring TATs, but model that region by by around three hundred beats. Right. So at the moment, it's more like a proof of concept that uh, this this is potentially doable, albeit in on a on a small scale. Uh, but how do you choose the number? So, so the number of copies of the state space, which is the ensemble size, right? Mm-hmm. Is uh, basically you're you're saying is this number of like maybe tissues or this number of different modes of chromatin that that. Uh, exist in this population, right? And uh, right. how do you pick that number? Yeah, that's a very, very interesting question. Um, so in previous approaches, there was very little uh, objective methodology to pick that number. Um, but we actually treat this number, uh, again, as a parameter which we don't set a priori, but which we want to infer the data, uh, infer from the data. So we make use of Bayesian model comparison as a framework. Uh, basically meaning that uh, we calculate or we simulate uh, with the different numbers of or states of conformers uh, from 1 up to 100 in certain steps. Uh, then we would calculate the uh, evidence, which is basically the normalization constant uh, of the possible distribution and the likelihood of of generating uh, the experimental data under the assumption of our model. And the simulation, which results in the highest evidence, would then be uh, preferred by the data. And that would be the simulation or the number of conformers we pick as the right one, again, under the assumptions of our statistical model. And uh, were you able to correlate that number inferred by your model to some sort of you know, characteristic of your data, like again, the number of tissues or something like that, or like what what was the number like in in your analysis? Yeah, so this number is um, at the moment. Uh, I have to admit, not uh, doesn't really relate to a biological thing. Uh, that is because our model is still very coarse grained, uh, and of course, uh, both the uh, Likelihood to back calculate data and the uh, physical a priori model is just very approximate. Um, so it's more a guideline on how to set an important modeling parameter. But in fact, we envision, and that, that would be actually very, very cool that given more accurate models and uh, fast implementation and, and just quicker computers, faster computers in the next few years, you could actually use, um, these evidence calculations as a, uh, tool to measure cell-to-cell variability, right? I mean, imagine you have uh, two uh, populations of samples um, from, for example, different tissues, and you would expect, this is just an uneducated guess, I'm not a biologist, that, for example, uh, a sample from cancer cells would be much more diverse uh, because it's a very chaotic uh, thing going on than, say, I don't know, uh, a non-cancer cell type 
And then we would hope that um, simulations from cancer cells would give a, a higher number of states in the model as calculated by the uh, basin model comparison as compared to simulations from data from non-cancerous cells. But this is a very, very ambitious goal. <laughs> and uh, we don't, we don't, um, yeah, we don't say that we, we can do this yet, but uh, at the moment it's, it's just an objective way to set a modeling parameter. And uh, maybe this is a naive take, but I was curious if you could use your former model that you set up for the uh, single cell high C to whether you could apply that module to population high C in the sense that it would be essentially a mixture, right? So you would collapse all these copies of the state space with their respective probabilities with, with which they occur in the wild in or in your sample. And uh, the the different confirmations that occur in your sample would just become different modes in your posterior distribution. Would would that work? Uh, this is a very questionable approach. Um, so one of the main motivations we actually came up with the multi-state modeling is that uh, still most published uh, methods to model. Uh, structures from population IC data actually calculate consensus structures. So try to find a single structure, a single conformation of the chromatin polymer, which explains the data as well, as best as possible. Um, but well, again, in the light of cell to cell reliability, we think this approach is, uh, it's a very dangerous road to take. Um, and then it's also important to note that if we get different modes in the posterior distribution, this is just a measure of uncertainty uh, and not necessarily of structural variability, I think. But those are very similar things, aren't they? So to be clear, I, I agree with your take on the consensus structure, mm. right? But once you move into the Bayesian modeling and once you have a posterior distribution, uh, why couldn't that take care of of the different things? So, so if you if you pose this question as you know, what is the distribution of the confirmation, mm. and and the the, the 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 distribution is just a mixture of multiple distributions, and oh, you currently try mm. to model the the multiple distribution yeah. uh, distributions, but you can also collapse them with their respective probabilities and um, maybe that this could be well this should definitely be more yeah, more yeah, efficient yeah, yeah. yeah I, see, I see where you're going so one thing we actually noticed in uh, the uh, uh, multi-state models we we calculated is that those are very diverse right uh, so we actually try to cluster um, or find clusters of say dominant states or structures uh, from our multi-state models, but that actually didn't work out. So um, if you go from one multi-state model to the next one in the chain, it looks very, very different, actually. So um, there's just that tells us that there's many, many ways to uh, reconstruct this average data. So many, many different structures which uh, taken together fulfill the population average data. So you would expect like a lot of a lot of modes uh, if you well take the approach you proposed. And I can hardly imagine that you would be able to to uh, distinguish any of them. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I think we're running out of time here, but is there anything else you'd like to, to bring up? So um, definitely one thing uh, regarding my research. Our population-based method or multi-state model-based method actually only assumes that uh, the input matrix you get uh, somehow is proportional to a contact probability matrix. That means that uh, you could use the method we developed uh, also on different kinds of data, right? So in the meanwhile, there's alternatives to HiC, uh, which are not ligation-based, thus eliminating uh, a big uh, potential for bias and errors. And you could as well uh, use our method on um, on these kinds of data. And uh, you could also furthermore envision uh, to use these multi-state models not only on well, uh, genome organization problems, but also on, say, uh, quantitative cross-linking uh, to an extent to that's, that, that's possible. 
So that would be an, an important thing to note. And other than that, um, career-wise for me, I am looking for all kinds of data scientist positions and absolutely would not mind uh, staying in the sort of life science or biomedical uh, field. So if any of your listeners, well, have an idea, uh, maybe an interesting company I could apply to, I'd be very happy to to hear about that. Absolutely. And uh, you'll be able to find uh, Simeon's uh, contact or, or some kind of link. May oh, you have a website, don't you? So we'll we'll link to your website. Um, okay, great. On the episode page, sure. So people can easily find you, uh, Simeon. This is a very interesting conversation. Uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you. You're welcome.